It's watering time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I'm your host. And today on our show, we're going to continue our discussion on soul care and Sabbath, finding rhythm and rest in your story. Because for many of us, we are out of rhythm. COVID has brought that to the forefront. Even before that, we were trying to keep up an unsustainable pace, and we were all in need of rest. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, is finding rhythm and rest in your story as we consider this principle of Sabbath for our souls. But before we get to that, we have a word from our sponsors. Are you looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area? If so, I highly recommend giving Kathy Brothers a call of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She comes with years of experience and loves people. Kathy's trustworthy and truly does care about her clients. And I can say this for a fact because I am one of them and I have experienced this firsthand. Kathy is my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but has regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. I would recommend giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630 630- 201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. Now let's get get back to our talk about soul care. Soul care is one of the most overlooked items in our spiritual inventory. We think about a lot of different things, but soul care is often not one of them. It's one of those things that we believe is optional and great for those spiritual ascetics or those people who are simply super spiritual. And we fail to see that our soul care is actually creating a rhythm for our souls, a rhythm for our life. And we need rhythm. We need to learn rhythm. If we don't, then the world will give us a song that forces us to dance to it. And it is creating an unsustainable pace for each one of us. When I was a kid, I had to learn about rhythm through taking piano lessons. I had a piano teacher that wanted to instill within me this idea of rhythm. And I wasn't a very good piano student. I didn't take to it very well. I had a very hard time reading the notes and understanding what a rest meant and understanding how to keep different time signatures. So she put this little object down on the piano called a metronome. And if anyone's ever taken piano lessons, you know how annoying this little thing can be because it continually ticks back and forth. And it will tick slow or it will tick fast, depending on what time signature she places it on, or what rhythm she places it on. And I found that no matter what the time signature was, I couldn't keep up. It was just too fast. I wasn't quick enough, and I found myself frustrated, filled with anxiety and stress, and started to really hate piano. You know, our our world creates a rhythm and pace that we just can't keep up with either, and it's causing us to face our own spiritual limitations and, in many ways, spiritual bankruptcy, where we get so far out of rhythm that we inevitably head for a crash or disaster. In fact, this past week, we saw that the high-profile pastor of Hillsong, New York City, Carl Lentz, was dismissed because of moral failures. And he had this sad confession to make online. He said, 
Laura and I and our amazing children have given all that we have to serve and build this church, and over the years, I did not do an adequate job of protecting my own spirit, refilling my own soul, and reaching out for the readily available help that is available. When you lead out of an empty place, you make choices that have real and painful consequences. That's sobering. Coming from a pastor, and being in pastoral ministry, I can attest to what he's talking about in that you can you can minister out of an empty place. You can go through the motions. You can do all of these different things. And unfortunately, I've seen many different pastors over the years head for crashes. And if pastors are doing this, how much more do we need to understand and apply this principle of soul care? We need to get back to that first priority. Yes, Jesus Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And while we do war against the flesh, against the evil one, against the kingdom of this world, we know that inevitably we have to take care of our souls and our relationship with Jesus in order for that to happen. It's not about the political process. It's not about achieving great things from a cultural standpoint. Instead, it's in the quiet confidence and testimony that we make from lives that are consecrated to him as we seek to live out and perform his gospel in the midst of this world. And in order to do that, we have to take on a different rhythm because the world really does try to make us fit its own song. It has its own rhythm, its own values, its own way of going about the world, its own way of dictating and telling us what success is. And I have seen so many Christians uncritically adopt these type of philosophies and mindsets in order to get ahead because they believe that's what's necessary. And so few churches fail to understand or address these deep currents that are involved in our culture that are carrying us along. And we're so busy trying to build the boat or make it faster or this boat that we're on, if you will. If you can imagine the world is this river and we're just trying to get ahead for the kingdom of God and we're, we're doing all these things on the boat and we're pointing out all these great things and making it so beautiful on the boat or making it more comfortable for the saints and we fail to realize that this river is headed for a giant waterfall and we're going to go over and we have to reverse the flow of the river. That's why we need to confront this spirit of the age and this idea of the world and what it is. And when we talk about the world, what we're talking about there is we're talking about one of the three enemies that we as Christians face. We know that we face the flesh, which is this fallen part of our humanity that is not yet redeemed. That's where that sinful inclination comes from. And that'll be taken away when we get to glory, where we will be freed from the presence of sin, and we won't have to endure it any longer. We're also talking about the powers of darkness, the evil one, the devil and his angels. And thirdly, we're talking about the world. And whenever we're talking about the world, what is the world? Well, the Bible says that the world engages the desires of the flesh and involves the desires of the eyes and this pride of life. That's that's easy to describe. I mean, that's how the Bible describes it, but it's hard sometimes to really see what that is. I like my Professor David Wells' explanation of it. He said that the world is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I think that's very true. It is anything that makes sin look normal, and sometimes sin is not so obvious. Sometimes we adapt means that become sin in themselves because they're actually tearing apart our souls. I'm reminded of the book by Ernest Hemingway, The Old Man in the Sea, where he captures this 
this fish and he's carrying it along his boat and slowly these other fish just come and start tearing at it. I think that's how that's what's happening to us is that as we continue on in the world, we just get one bit, one piece bit out of us, another piece bit out of us, and eventually there's just nothing left. So we have to reorient ourselves to God and His Word and adopt a new rhythm and song of life to live and dance by, if you will. And I get this because I see it within the scriptures that the battlefield that we have is actually in our minds. While we see everything going on in the world, it actually is focused on our minds and how we think. The world has this way of making us think a certain way or trying to make us fit and conform to a certain pattern of thinking, adopting certain ideals that we don't even realize that we're adopting unless we stop and really look at the Word of God and let the Word of God look deep down into us. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, because he knew the temptation that we face as we try to cater to our flesh, as the devil's trying to influence us, and as we look at the world around us and what is valued by those in the world. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The launching pad for finding a different rhythm begins in the mind. The world wants to make us fit a certain mold. That's what it means to be conformed, to think the way the world wants you to think. And that means, in the West, going a thousand miles per hour. God knows us better than we know ourselves, and the Bible is the only suitable life metronome that we can live by. That's where we get this concept and idea of Sabbath. And in talking about Sabbath, I I want to address something, because last week we discussed the purpose of Sabbath, and today I want to clarify some things about it, because I know that there is a great deal of confusion over it. Is it something that we are required to obey by law? Last week we learned that it originated in creation and not law, and though Jesus came to fulfill it, what does that mean for us? Because doesn't the Bible say that there are those who esteem one day better than another? So we don't have to observe it, right? That's true. In the strictest sense, we don't. Because, first of all, and and there's a couple reasons for this. First of all, it's because Jesus fulfilled the law, and we aren't under it anymore. And we read about this in such passages as Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23, and Romans chapter 14. And, And these passages admonish us not to judge others who feel convicted to observe one day over another. So if we were to take that to its conclusion, then we don't have to observe any day, right? We we shouldn't have any Sabbath or any set-apart time. If if Jesus fulfilled it, then we're completely free. And and, and while that's true, we're going to see in just a moment, while that's not what the early church practiced, and it's not what we are to practice as well. But going back to this Sabbath concept, okay, let's say that we do advocate for celebrating it on Saturday. Well, then we'd be in sin for those of us in the West because we we take Sunday and set that apart. And if we don't observe it on Saturday, then the strict sense, then we would be in sin. Why do we worship on Sundays? That's because Jesus rose on the first day of the week and the early church observed what they termed the Lord's Day. It wasn't a Sabbath in the strictest sense of the Old Testament, no. Instead, it was meant for the gathering of a body of believers to be instructed from the Word of God and focused on the positive rather than the negative. That being said, when looking at creation and final salvation, I think it is best to look at it this way. Sabbathing is making time 
to rest, reflect, and respond to God as individuals and as a believing community for one day a week. It's not law, it's opportunity. It's opportunity to recognize and feed our souls and get in rhythm with God. Some believe that we don't need to set aside any time for intentional corporate worship. And I I reject that, especially since we've seen with COVID and quarantining how quickly days can roll into one another. Corporate worship enables us to be renewed, refocused, and reoriented to God and find his rhythm or get in rhythm with his song of redemption. This view that I am advocating is not about a strict adherence to the do's and don'ts. The New Testament doesn't give us that. Instead, it gives us a reorientation and principles for finding that rhythm and rest. Our concern, then, should be applying the principles of Sabbath rest to our daily lives so that we can really find its rhythm. We got we to step into this dance somewhere. When I was in Uganda, I, would ha- I had the opportunity of going to different villages, and every tribe has its own dance, and I loved that. I wish that I had that in my history, and I would see them dancing, and they would teach the teachers that in, in the various schools that we went to, made sure to teach it to the children, and the children would be learning the steps of their tribe. And I loved that, the older and the younger together, dancing together. And of course, I wanted to join in because I wanted to learn more about this culture and I liked to dance and I wanted to celebrate with them. And I had to jump in somewhere. I couldn't just start at the beginning. I couldn't get all the steps right. It meant a little bit making a fool of myself, but it was fun. And they were honored that I cared about their culture and wanted to participate with them. And I was honored that they would allow me to do that. But I had to get in somewhere. I had to to find that rhythm. And how do we do that then with God? Well, it involves just setting aside a day for physical rest and reorientation to God and his people. And I'm going to put those two together because we do need to reorient ourselves to God, but God does save us into a community. We need people. We need physical rest, and we need to reflect and respond to God as individuals and as a community. And here's what I mean by this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, probably one of the most often repeated passages through this pandemic for pastors, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This simply states that we need to be together as God's people. Don't you want to be with other people? I miss giving people hugs and and shaking hands and being with people. I don't know about you, but I do. I'm so tired of masks. I'm so tired of having to keep distance from people, especially older ones. I know there, there are so many seasoned saints in our world that are desperate for a touch or a hug, but because of COVID, we do keep our distance. And I know that this is a point of contention and frustration to many Christians, and I would echo your frustration because we are a community and we do need one another. Jesus saved us into a body. However, this is where I find Christians often get confused, especially here in the West, where we have been given restrictions on how we are to worship. And we want to honor the state because God calls us to honor the state. The purpose of government is to enable the good and to restrain evil. That's the purpose, the God-ordained purpose that God has created government. But what do we do then if the government tells us that we're not to meet together or that we have to wear masks? 
And I've seen churches or heard of churches splitting over this very issue. And I find this to be incredibly frustrating because I think that there are some principles that are being skipped over. This is where our American individualism and our love for freedom oftentimes trumps our understanding of Scripture and what it means to apply these truths to the greater body of Jesus, especially in relation to our government. Now, here's what I mean by that, and, and I think we do need to consider two principles. First of all, it's the love principle, and I'd like to call it that. And the second one is commonly referred to as the weaker brother principle. Now, what is that? I wanna, I'm going to talk about some different passages that relate to this, and I'm going to, I'm going to take us into a world that is a bit unfamiliar for us in the West. If you are in India or Bangladesh or you're listening someplace in Asia or South America or even Africa, this, these, what I'm getting ready to talk about is not such a foreign experience to you, but it is to my brothers and sisters often in the West. Not completely, but often in the West. And I want us to grasp this. Now, Paul wrote to this church at Corinth, was, which was dealing with a lot of different issues. This was a pretty messed up church, and they needed a lot of instruction. They needed to know really how to follow Jesus, because many of them had come from very pagan backgrounds. They came from a world where they worshipped many different gods and goddesses. If you're familiar with any type of history, you know of the Roman and Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses, but so did Egypt, and India does even today as well. So they had their different gods and goddesses, and when they came to be followers of Jesus, they needed to know how to interact with their friends and family that were still involved in that world. How do they honor God and yet reach their family and show them honor and respect? How do they honor God above their families, and what do they do? What do they say whenever they feel like they have to compromise their faith in order to reach them? I know it seems a little bit strange right now, but I'm going to bring this out here in just a moment. Whenever we're talking about these kind of passages in 1 Corinthians, I know that many of us are wondering what is going on. We may be familiar with different passages in 1 Corinthians, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, which is the famous love chapter, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. Many of us are familiar with that chapter, but we're not familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 8 because it's talking about idolatry. Now, idolatry is something that we in the West don't really have a great grasp of. Whenever we hear the term, we might think of figurines or statues, but it's actually much broader than that. I love how Mark Driscoll defines it. He says, an idol is a good thing that becomes a God thing, and instead that becomes a bad thing. Now, he's not talking about statues there or figurines. He's talking about concepts, ideals, practices, habits, conceptions of different things that we place as the supreme ideal in our life that we are willing to sacrifice in order to have happen, and that becomes the very supreme dictator for everything that we do and say, and therefore takes the place of God, and it becomes idolatry. Now, idolatry is a very serious thing, and it's found within every single culture without exception. It just has different objects or things that it looks to or makes as an idol. As John Calvin once said, he's the Swiss theologian who wrote his Institutes, a very famous man of which Calvinism kind of draws its name from, said that our hearts are continual idol factories, and we're always making idols. Now, in the ancient world, however, it wasn't so broad. It was actually very specific, talking about figures and statues, and they had them everywhere. 
It's like in India today. There are 335 million gods, and there are there are little altars everywhere you go. If you drive down the street or you're on a country road, you'll see this almost like a little little dollhouse, um, and it, it's just a little bit bigger than a dollhouse, and it might have a small little fence around it, and it will have like an altar in front of it, and it even have bars on the doorway, and you can come right up and look right in the doorway, and you'll see the God that this altar is dedicated to, and people will come and make offerings of food, um, they'll have flowers, they'll go and pray there to their God or goddess. It's like sharing the gospel in India today, and if someone were worshiping a false god and that they found out or learned about who Jesus is and they received him as Lord and Savior, yet their family members are still worshiping that god or goddess, they have to learn how to navigate these waters of trying to reach them but honoring God at the same time. And here's what I mean. Oftentimes, people would sacrifice an animal to their god or goddess, and then they would eat that food as part of that sacrifice. That became... A pretty big deal for people who had come out of this idolatry and saw that the God that they had worshipped was really no God at all. And now that they were believing in Jesus, what were they supposed to do? By participating in eating that food or eating in the temple where that that family get-together would take place, were they then guilty of idolatry and sinning against God? Were they acknowledging that this God really did exist? These were real issues that the church faced. And I'm going to bring this all back here in a moment to show how this applies to our contemporary situation, but just stay with me for a moment. When they came together, Paul had to address this because this was a real issue, and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 13. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much, but the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, There is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created, and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, and through him we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. And their weak consciences are violated. It is true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your, quote, superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So, because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So, if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Stay with me. Now, because I want to look at one other passage for a moment, and then after that, I will explain how this relates to our current cultural situation. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through 6. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. 
One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, what I want us to see is that in both of these passages, while they're referring to food offered to idols and the observance of different days as a means of righteousness, are used to help us understand this principle of the weaker brother. Paul makes every effort to ensure that all are treated according to the principle of love. He says, some of you have superior knowledge, some of you don't. Now, if I'm going to put this into masks, here it is. There are some who believe that you should wear a mask. There are others that say that you shouldn't, and they believe that this whole big COVID thing is a giant hoax. And there are others that are saying, how stupid are you? Look at all the numbers. And they say that it's not that um, big a deal. And these two go back and forth to one another. And so there could even be debate on who the weaker brother is. However, if one person says that I need to wear a mask, I do so for the common good of those around me and so that I may not offend or hurt those who believe that they can get this from me. See what I'm saying here? is that we wear a mask in order to help our brothers and sisters who are struggling with this. Even if we do not believe that it's an issue, we do so for the common good. That's why we come together, is to serve one another for the common good. That's why God gives us a portion of his spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 7. It's for the common good of other people. We should consider the consciences and the faith of other people. And if there are some who believe that they can get this right away, and, and, and let's just go with their conscience now. Let's not look at all the data, but let's just look at the conscience. And we should say, we want to help them because it's only for a short period of time in a worship service. That's all we have to do this for. I'll, I'll, you know right now, I don't like wearing a mask. I hate it. I feel like I can't breathe. I feel like it stifles me. I can't wait to get it off. But I will wear it so that I can help other people feel safe around me. If it's real or if it wasn't real, either way, I should be doing it to help other people whose consciences may not feel the same way as mine do. And I'm not advocating one position or another, meaning that that you're an anti-masker or if you're a masker. I'm not I'm not saying that I'm not saying I'm not saying which way the data should really go. What I'm saying is whether it's true or not, there are those around us who believe it. We all have to admit we don't know everything. I'm tired of getting news that contradicts each other each and every day. One moment it says this, and the next moment the news says that. So as a means of conscience and as a means of loving my brother, I'm going to wear that so that the name of Christ can be magnified, so that we cannot pass judgment on one another, whether we adhere to it or not, because the principle of love and the weaker brother principle is greater than my understanding of what's going on politically in our culture. Because it's become a political issue. And my politics has to take back seat to my understanding of Christ and love. Now, some might object and say, well, that's catering to a lie. Well, again, you might say that, and that's where your conscience has led you to believe. But others disagree with you, and let's focus on what unifies us, which is Jesus. This is not something we should split over. This isn't something that is so important to our spiritual lives that 
we can't find common ground. However, there are those who will undoubtedly say, what are we supposed to do when we're not allowed to worship? Well, that's true. What do we do there? Because that's for the common good as well, but we know that we need to be with God's people. God has made us that way. Zoom and watching something stream online is a poor substitute. I believe it was at the end of 2 John and 3 John where he says, I've written to you enough in paper and ink, and I long to see you face to face. And he wasn't talking about Zoom or streaming. He was talking about being together. There's something special about being together. And while we want to recognize the government's authority in order to preserve society, if and when it begins to counteract our spiritual life, meaning that it is fighting against it and we are suffering in the process where we suffer spiritual death. Here's what I mean by that. There's a physical death and there's a spiritual death. We know that we're all going to experience a physical death. But if you're a believer in Christ, you will not experience the second or the spiritual death, but unbelievers will. This is something that often goes overlooked in our pragmatic services that we we go to. We're all about finding the quick solution and how to find a better life now and a better marriage and better kids and better time management. And we don't talk about some of these harder or more difficult doctrines. And the Bible does talk about this, is that we have to understand that there is a physical death and a spiritual death. And if we don't meet together for a period of time, we are starving our souls. The greater damage is for our long-term spiritual health than it is for the physical health of those around us. We need to be together. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm advocating, is that we're to obey God rather than men. And if God and if man is saying that we can't meet together, we have to obey God rather than men. Now, we take every precaution necessary in order to make everyone around feel safe. But we need to honor God. We need to hear from the word of God. We need to be together as God's people. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We need to be there. And, and if we don't, if we are not in corporate worship, then we're like a taken out of the fire and our spiritual zeal begins to cool. We are made to worship and we're made to worship with other people. God made us to worship. That's what we read within the Psalms. That's what actually bothered C.S. Lewis so much is when he first read the Psalms as an unbeliever, he was appalled at what he read about God because God was constantly saying, praise me, tell me how good I am, praise me, praise me. And he said, it felt like a vain woman standing in front of a mirror in a new dress, telling, asking the people around her to tell her how beautiful she was. It really bothered him. But when he started to really delve down deep and he gave his life to Jesus, he saw something entirely different. He saw that God was commanding us to praise him, not because he needed it and not because he was vain, but because it's in the process of being worshiped that God communicates himself to us. So when God tells us to worship him, He's saying, I want to give you myself. I want to give you my heart. I want to show myself in your life. I want you to experience the joy of knowing me. Isn't that incredible? That's why the early church set apart a time of worship to honor God. It wasn't just through ritualistic observance. It was so that God would communicate himself, not just to them as individuals, but as a church. And some say, well, I don't need the church. Well, then you haven't read the New Testament because the New Testament is pregnant with this concept of one another. I mean, even when Paul wrote letters to the church at Corinth, to the church at Thessalonica, to the church at Colossae, to to the church at Rome, 
They, they considered themselves one body. They also considered that they were responsible to one another, love one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, admonish one another, forgive one another. This idea of being together as God's people in worship is who we are made to be. And to be forbidden from that is a tremendous travesty to our souls. We need to be together, taking every precaution in order to preserve the common good, as well as to ensure that the ministry of the kingdom of God goes forth. We need to worship. And that means setting aside a special time to rest and worship, to worship God individually and corporately, to reorient ourselves to God. That's what this whole, this Sabbathing concept is about, finding our rhythm and our rest. It involves reorientation to God first and foremost, and that means taking the time to worship and be with God's people. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, said, Our conviction should not be rooted in a concern about Sabbath breaking, but the Lord's day keeping. Israel's keeping of the Sabbath is less important than our observing the Lord's day. The Lord's day should be set apart for worship so that we should not do anything that distracts of worship. Let us long for the Lord's day each week. See, it is our duty and responsibility to prioritize this day to be with God and his people, to reorient ourselves to him and to find rest. But how do we do it? Prioritizing involves us stopping anything that really diverts the soul from spiritual refreshment. That's the principle, is stopping anything that diverts the soul from spiritual refreshment. Albert Moeller again writes, are there things that we ought not to do on the Lord's day? Again, this isn't legalism, but he says, certainly there are. Anything that would detract from our worship should not be done on the Lord's day. Now, let me say this for those in the West. This means baseball. This means music. This means sporting events. This means good things. Because in doing so, and I know you feel like you're denying your child the opportunity to do something good or great or to participate or let down the team. No, it's showing that your life is on a different rhythm. And I've heard some parents say, well, maybe your child doesn't have talent. That's why your child cannot be a part of this. And my child does. Okay, let's take that principle to its conclusion. Let's say that your child becomes the best in the world at what he or she does, whether that's music or sports. And let's say they've gained the whole world but they've sacrificed their own soul. Didn't Jesus talk about that? Didn't he? I mean, we have, to, we have to consider that, right? And there are so many celebrities or people that put their kids up to be these stars, and you can just go down the list of these people that were once followers of Jesus, but they became really successful in song or music or athletics, and they sacrificed their soul in the process. Is that worth the price? I don't think so. Anything that would be on our minds, Muller again, when we are worshiping, as if we can only get done with this in order to go do that, is a matter of sin, no matter what it is. How true. What is keeping our souls from spiritual refreshment? What is getting in the way of our walk with God? And it's going to look different for each one of us, that rhythm of the Lord's day. I mean, what is keeping your soul from spiritual refreshment? What renews you? 
What is getting in the way of your walk with God? You might be your business. You say that you can't get ahead unless you do business on this period of time. Maybe it's your finances. You need to make money. I mean, we all have to do that. We all have to, to, to pay the bills. But do we really trust God enough to meet, meet us in those other six days? Or what about our, our hobbies? I find that this is bigger than the other two in, in my experience, especially in the West, if there anything that keeps us from seeing God for who he is, then we probably shouldn't be doing it. It's not about what we, we don't get to do. It's about what we do get to do. It's for our refreshment. However, in doing all of those things, our focus should be on the Lord, and therefore we do need to remove anything that diverts the soul from spiritual refreshment. Now, when we're talking about this concept of business, people might say, well, this is all well and good. You, you're a pastor. You don't have the luxury of, I mean, I don't have the luxury like you do of taking that time off. I've got to get ahead. My competitors are out there all the time. We've got, we've got to go, go, go. We've got to sell. We've got to, we've got to do. We've got to make it happen. We have got to earn the money. I've got mouths to feed. I've got family. Families depending on me right now. I'm a business owner. Then I want to give you an example that shows what happens when you honor God from someone in business. You may have heard of S. Truett Cathy, or you may not. You may have heard of his restaurant, Chick-fil-A. His first Chick-fil-A opened in 1967 in Hapeville, Georgia. What you may not know is that he was committed to building this restaurant chain around five principles, and here they are. Number one, climb with care and confidence. In other words, let's build this business, but let's do so with care. And let's do so confidently. Let's think about the people around us. Number two, create a loyalty effect. Let's try to create something that's so great that people want to defend it, they want to go after it, and they consider it their restaurant. Number three, never lose a customer. Let's do everything in our power to take care of the customers that have been brought to our door. Number four, put principles and people ahead of profits. Let's consider the people more than we do making money. Now, again, this is from a businessman who needs, who has a bottom line, who has to make a profit, who has to feed people, who has to, to turn a profit in the middle of this world, and everyone around is saying, you got to go, you got to go, you got to build, you got to build. And then this was his fifth principle that really turned the world on its head. Closed on Sunday. See, he recognized that there needed to be a Sabbath rhythm to life. A Sabbath rhythm. That's where he found his rhythm and his rest. And on this last principle, this is what Kathy wrote. I was not so committed to financial success that I was willing to abandon my principles and priorities. One of the most visible examples of this is our decision to close on Sunday. Our decision to close on Sunday was our way of honoring God and of directing our attention to things that mattered more than our business. Wow. Chick-fil-A is the only major fast food restaurant chain to be closed on Sundays, and it, which is one of the busiest days, or pre-COVID it was, of the week in the restaurant business. Despite being closed on Sundays, Truett Cathy has led Chick-fil-A to an unparalleled record of over 40 consecutive years of sales increases, with its core freestanding restaurants achieving higher sales per unit in six days with shorter operating hours than most chains in the industry. Now, he's with Jesus now, but when, he was, when that was written, I mean, that's in the middle of the fight. That's in the middle of the battle. That's, this is a man who's saying in our modern society, with all of the different pushes, all of the different competitors, we were still growing, even though we took a day off. And even when we, did, we were open, we had shorter business hours. What would do that? What, what is that? What is about it? It's God. It's God that makes that appeal to people. And God has honored them. 
He went so far to close his business and honor the Lord and then let his employees honor God as well. That's pretty cool when you consider all of the different things, all the different businesses and restaurants that are out there to see how they have grown so faithfully over the years. It's an encouragement. It's an example for each one of us that we can see that if we honor God, God will honor us. And it's not always going to be easy. People are going to critique. People are going to come against. People are going to say we're foolish. People are going to say that it's stupid. But when they see what happens in your life, they may take stock of their own and stop and reflect and then adopt that same rhythm. Now let's get back. What else do we need to think about as we're adapting this Sabbath rhythm and rest for our lives? Well, we need to also cease any activity. Remember, it's not about what we don't do. It's what what we get to do. However, we also have to be able to identify what's inbounds and out-of-bounds, meaning that there, there are general principles that we look to, not specific practices, but general principles. And one of those general principles is we should cease anything that deprives the body of renewed energy. We got to reorient ourselves. If we're out there just killing ourselves, trying to get more work done, then that's not something that we need to do. If we're feeling drained more by the end of the day, then we shouldn't be doing it. I mean, this invitation of Sabbath time is, is to replace the time you would normally spend working with activities that you find restorative. Taking a nap, going on a walk, maybe a bike ride, or maybe just taking a hot bath, something to relax sitting in the sun, maybe just lighting a candle, whatever it might be, listening to some beautiful music, I, I don't know. So we have to ask ourselves this, what are the practices that are interfering with our Sabbath reorientation and rest? What is wearing us out? So let's, let's try to figure that out. What is wearing you out that you need to stop that's actually causing you more stress rather than restoration? It could be watching sports that you initially thought was restful, but it's actually wearing you out. Then you should probably not be doing that. And you might love that sport. But God is saying, no, get away with me. Now, I'm not saying that you have to watch or not watch. I'm saying is, does that actually wear you out or does it restore you? What then also, here's another principle. What then distracts the mind from its focus on God? What's distracting your mind? Are you just filling it with other things? You just take this day and fill it with other stuff. It could be sports. It could be entertainment. It could be tech. That's not restorative. That's not what I have found. I found it actually wears me out. I like, again, what Moeller said. He said, anything that would be on our minds when we are worshiping, as if we can only get done with this in order to go do that, it's a matter of sin, no matter what it is. That's so true. If it's distracting us from making God the priority of our lives, if it's a game, football, basketball, baseball, cricket, soccer, squash, I don't care, curling, it's taking you away from making God a priority. If it's doing that, if it's taking, taking God away from being a priority in our lives, then we shouldn't do it. Yes, Jesus' death frees us from considering one day better than another, but we're still to take the time to be together in worship, just as we read earlier in Hebrews. You know, Ruth Haley Barton, in her book, Sacred Rhythm, says, Another invitation of the Sabbath is to pay attention to what replenishes the Spirit and choose only those activities that renew you and bring you joy. Obviously, this is highly personal to each one of us. It's amazing to have permission to pay attention to what delights you and choose that on this day. As you explore this aspect of Sabbath, pay close attention to those activities that merely stimulate you or serve as fillers and those things that really replenish you. 
Usually television and most things technological are not really replenishing. They're merely distractions from God's more meaningful gifts. We do need to find out what replenishes us, and part of that means discovering how we best connect to God. Now, I I want to talk about something here for a moment that I read in Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Pathways. In this book, he says or maintains that there are nine spiritual temperaments, all within a biblical framework, that he can show by looking at various biblical characters and by examining the lives of different saints throughout church history who have connected with God in different ways. And he maintains that there are nine different ways, what he calls spiritual temperaments, where we best connect to God. He says that each saint has at least one, and some have them all, but here they are, and I want to give them to you for your benefit so that you might find the proper temperament that you have. And you probably already know it, you've just never really put a name or label to it. But when you do understand it, I, my hope and prayer is that it might help you grow in your walk with Jesus, and you might institute these type of practices that are in accordance to your spiritual temperament. Here they are. Number one, naturalist. These are are those who connect with God by being out in nature. They can say very clearly, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. So these are the people who really do discover God in a greater way by being out in creation. Then there are the sensates, those who love God with the senses. They like to have different smells and tastes. They might think of communion as a means of worship or taking in the, the wine or the cup or those who are smelling the incense in some services or, or like to spend their quiet time lighting a candle because that helps cultivate the sense of God's presence. Then there are the traditionalists, those who love God with ritual and symbol. It might mean being in a service where it might be a high church service where there are those who are doing the very sacred motions that have been passed down from generation to generation as they're examining how they they bless the people or how they bless the cup and bless the bread or how they, they smell the incense even in the service. And they're watching all of these things and how they take place. Then there are the aesthetics. These are those who love God in solitude and simplicity. They want to simplify their lives. They want to be alone, and they want to think more about God so they can contemplate who he is. On the opposite side are the activists. These are, who love, these are those who love God through confrontation, and they like being out, and they like talking to people and really engaging them, and they feel close to God in that way. Next are the caregivers. These are those who love God by loving others. They feel most close to Christ when they are able to serve other people. They, they feel like they are the hands and feet, and they're serving just as Jesus served. Then there are the enthusiasts, those who love God with mystery and celebration. I've, I've seen these in my church, uh, in, in some of the churches that I've served in. They want to shout, and they want to dance, and they want to celebrate, and they feel so much closer to God when they're able to do so. And then there are the contemplatives, those who love God through adoration. They want to sit and be silent and simply adore God and lift God high. It might be in worship and just admire him for who he is. And then lastly 
are those who are the intellectuals. These are those who love God with the mind, and they like to think about all of the different intellectual arguments of who God is. They love to read and think and really contemplate more about who God is. And these are the different spiritual temperaments that Thomas believes that are present within each one of us. And he can prove each one through biblical example and examining church history. And I think that they provide a great pathway for each one of us that we might try, and we might try to integrate into our lives so that we might be able to Sabbath properly because they're going to help us. They're going to help us to be able to see God and experience him in a greater way. Which one is yours? Which one of those do you resonate most with? It might be a few of them, it might be one of them, but inevitably or undoubtedly, there's at least one. And I would heavily encourage you that when you are Sabbathing, when you're taking this time to rest, when you're taking this time to reflect and reorient yourself to God, to try one of these different pathways in order to draw closer to him, and your soul will be grateful to know that you did. That's it for today's episode, everybody. I want to thank you for listening. If this episode has helped you, please share it with other people. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast or go online and throw us a like. Feel free to send us any questions or comments that you have. Tell us what you like or what you didn't like, and we'll try to make it better because we want to help equip you to saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, this is Travis Michael Fleming signing off with Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.